you know, some of the doctors have pushed back and said, listen, they tell me if I don't sign these charts, I can find another job. In defense of uh, residents and the other people you work with, I have a big problem with this myself. I think what we do is we kind of look at what the workup has been to that point and then decide. Well, it's that time again, Risk Managing Monthly, coming to you August 2021. We've got a whole bunch of people uh, this month. Uh, we have a guest, Randy Danielson. I'll uh, give you more information on Randy. Uh, Rachel Linder is on the line. Greg Henry's on the line. And we're all going to be discussing cases that have been brought to us by Randy. Randy, Randy uh, and I, and actually Greg, have known each other now for maybe about 10 years through the, um, the boot camp courses that we did. And at the time, uh, Randy was uh, the... Uh, representing the PA portion of that. We had a, we had some PAs and we had some NPs. Uh, but the fact of the matter is Randy's a very extraordinary PA for sure. Um, Randy has won the highest award that the uh, American Academy of Physicians Assistants can give, the uh, Eugene Stead Award. Got that a few years ago. He was the PA of the year for the AAPA. Um, he was the dean of the, uh, I always have trouble with this, Randy, the Arizona School of uh, Public Health, where the, he, he was the dean of about 11 professional, um, um, I don't know what you call them, professional um, programs. Programs, yeah. thank you, thank you. <laughs> Including <laughs> the uh, PA school that they had there and um, a bunch of, a bunch of others are related to like um, physical therapy and and radiology and, and and the like and he's also on the advisory board of medpro medpro is the largest insurer of uh, finish physicians i guess in the in the country and uh, so being a pa in 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 spirit he goes there and reviews cases and, and talks to them about uh, issues related to the, the PA world. And so he's brought us some cases related to that. So welcome, Randy. I appreciate your taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Happy to be here. And uh, Rachel, anything? Uh, I know you had some big stressor in your life when your child went to the first day of uh, of kindergarten yesterday. Have you recovered? Yeah, my, my car somehow took me to Target. I had a little cry. I spent about 400 bucks and I feel much better. <laughs> what, 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 what order did that occur? <laughs> Just that order. Um, when I dropped okay. my 18 year old off in college, I did the same thing. So it's all right. Yeah. Well, his daughter, Greg's daughter, just went to uh, Cambridge to get an MBA. Yes. Pretty cool. cool. God, you know, I wish I was around for me when I was a kid, but, you know, it, it would be nice. Uh, I have to mention one more person's name. Uh, Greg, Greg uh, Graham Bellingham is the chair of the MedPro Advisory Board, and um, he's he's full-time medical director of MedPro. And I, I got to just say, Graham and I, we worked together on the um, National Emergency Medicine Board Review. He was my first partner in that. He he and I wrote that course, and I I've very met I've met very very few people who have uh, Graham's work ethic, his kindness, his his uh, ability to get along with people. He is just I, and yeah, Greg, you were right. Graham, Graham finally did land on his feet. You know, after all of those, you know felony charges and you know, <laughs> yes, you know the things about well. the, the, uh, playing with the kids and all that other thing so congratulations yeah. graham you finally you finally made it so randy you have some cases uh we, you, if you go through them we'll add our two cents uh when uh we think it's appropriate but um these are a, a variety of um diagnoses that uh, came up that uh, uh, you can tell us about. Sure, happy to, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it as brief as I can. Uh, the first case we want to talk about is uh, really a 76-year-old female who comes to the emergency center complaining of sort of an unexplained 
pink, scaly, and itchy rash on her arms and her palms and her legs. Um, she was a resident in an extended living center and had been seen a week earlier by her primary care physician um, and uh, uh, placed on uh, Benadryl, over-the-counter Benadryl and over-the-counter hydrocortisone. Um, of significance, she was also placed on fluconazole um, for oral thrush by her doc um, and was sent home. And uh, so after, when the rash didn't improve, she came back to the ER and saw the PA and the doc in the ER um, and uh, uh, that the rash had actually worsened. And uh, so they took a look at uh, the the, uh, the rash, thought it you know it was a little bit worse, but uh, they they kept they uh, increased the Benadryl to 50 milligrams TID um, and um, increased the hydrocortisone cream to 2.5. Um, the physical exam is fairly unremarkable, uh, with the exception obviously of the geographic macular lesions on her arms and her palm and her trunk. Um, anyway, she was sent home. Three days later, she was back. Worse, uh, painful uh, sloughing occurred with the with the dermatitis, um, and she had large blistering areas of epidermis with lots of bullae over the back and the trunk and the lower extremities. And, and that actually, some had been lysed over by pressure. She had a fever of 104 and was diagnosed, obviously, with Stephen Johnson syndrome, um, and. Uh, um, uh, did do this was confirmed by biopsy, and uh, she was admitted to the bird unit. Uh, unfortunately, she died the next day. Um, obviously, uh, following that, the PA and and the physician um, uh, and the primary care physician were all sued for malpractice for missing the diagnosis of Stephen Johnson. Um, the the experts opined that this was likely caused by the fluconazole, um, and uh, that had they discontinued the fluconazole, um, this uh, this person might not have succumbed to that. So that's sort of the case in a nutshell. Um, obviously, uh, what we're looking at is, you know, should should the providers have discontinued the fluconazole? I guess the issue there is uh, being aware of it and, and looking at the med list. And, you know, we always were grumbling about the mecha, uh, medication reconciliation. Uh, oh, geez, oh, geez. But in this case, it probably would have been helpful. But I also, you know, I know personally, I didn't, I didn't, I wouldn't have thought of that relationship, you know, at all. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have thought of that relationship. But whenever you've added something, Stevens Johnson comes from something. And and so you go got to go back and start stripping away the medications and that kind of stuff. I wouldn't have probably named the disease, um, but uh, <laughs> then again, my brain is not so good, and I probably would have missed a lot of stuff. But you almost never lose by stopping medications, almost never. Well, one of the issues, that, that, I'm sorry, one of the, the issues that came up also was, you know, the the rash started before the adding of the fluconazole, and that's something mm -hmm. that came up during trial as well. Right. Yeah, I was going to mention that. It's like, uh, it's kind of strange where a process has begun, you add a another uh, medic, uh, you add a medication and somehow it accelerates that process or changes that process into something else. Um, so this is kind of like out there beyond my personal scope of, uh, of experience. That's for, that's for sure. But I know that we're not supposed to miss this disorder and that it, once it's a, it settles in, it's, it can be nasty as it was in this, um, person's in this case. case. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, clinically, it seems like there was probably an opportunity to document that there was no mucous membrane involvement. And I don't know if that was documented, but it seems like if that if it was that it would have prevented a bad legal outcome in this case, because then I think the PA and physician could kind of hang their hat on, you know, they thought about it. It wasn't there. But without that documentation, it, they're kind of sitting ducks. Um and then, you know, I think the, the elephant in the room with all these cases is physicians are worried about, you know, what's their liability risk when they're supervising PAs or NPs is 
kind of what was the involvement here? Did the physician even see the patient? Did they go into the room? Did they just hear about the patient, you know, who is down the hall but never saw them? Did they just see the chart later? That's what I think is unclear in some of these cases and um, probably is one of the, the kernels that makes these most meaningful to physicians and kind of trying to assess their role here. Yeah, it's it's hard to argue with that. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of these cases lack uh, the um, depth that would allow us to kind of ascertain some of those really essential points that relates to how we would behave ourselves in these situations. Because this idea of collaborating, um, we still have doctors signing a stack of charts at the end of the shift. Uh, throughout the country, there's doctors signing a stack of charts at the end of the shift. And, you know, our I think our collective view, Greg and I have said, please don't do that. Right. But, you know, some of the doctors have pushed back and said, listen, they tell me if I don't sign these charts, I can find another job. Yep. So well, um, I, I think the important point here, and it was brought up, and, and that is you need to have some um, standard of uh, collaboration. Uh, all the time, uh, and 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 decide early on what that collaboration is and how it works, and that ought to be, I think it ought to be documented. If the physician also saw the patient, you know, we need to know that if they actually saw the patient and examined the patient, rather than just sign the chart. So those things I think are important um, in the long run. Yeah, there's nothing like a note that says patient presented to Dr. Henry or Dr. So-and-so. So there's no question about whether you came in the room, whether you saw the patient, whether you were actually involved in the care. And, and I would just like to say that with all the new data about how many residency grads we are going to have uh, within uh, two months, uh, you know what? <laughs> they ought to be able to get somebody who can oversee these things and actually see the patients. Um, it's it's not going to fly for very much longer to say, well, there's no doctors available. There's no this, that. No, there actually are a hell of a lot more emergency docs available now than there was just five years ago. It's, it's a much different world out there. I was thinking that maybe the uh, family doctor misdiagnosed uh, thrush, and maybe this was some kind of oral lesion uh, consistent with an early case of Stephen Johnson's and was actually mistreated. Uh, so uh, that that would actually fit the timeline, I think, a little bit better. Right. Although then it wouldn't be due to the fluconazole. No, it'd just be a case of... Uh, misdiagnosis of uh, Stephen Johnson's in, in the early stage, I guess, which you really wouldn't send home, I don't think. And, and, I, and I think that's actually what happened. The, the, the verdict or the outcome in this was obviously after a couple of years of discovery uh, and the case actually went to trial um, and it was found in favor of the defendants. Um, and uh, so the PA and, and, and the physician um, uh, uh, prevailed. As they do in about 85% of the cases where they go to trial. Okay, yep. let's do the next one, uh, Randy. All right, thank you. Yeah. So, so this is a 51-year-old male that, that was working in his garage doing a bunch of moving boxes, and a box fell with a, a piece of glass, um, and, and it fell on the dorsum of his foot, caused about a five-inch laceration, was taken to the local ER. The PA examined uh, the area, cleaned it, um, explored the wound and noted that the tendons were intact. Um, sutures were applied. The patient was told, told to follow up, uh, you know, in four to six days. Uh, unfortunately, three days later, the, the pain in the foot got worse. The patient was seen by a podiatrist. Uh, there was a lot of redness and pain surrounding the wound. Um, the patient was very anxious, and the podiatrist ordered an MRI, which showed some significant tendon damage of the third, fourth, and fifth tendons. An orthopedic surgeon was consulted who then took the patient to surgery uh, and what he called a repaired, what he called shredded tendons. Um, patient didn't do well after surgery, uh, lots of pain and numbness. In fact, later on was put on Wellbutrin and Gabapentin and the like. Um, but uh, I, forgot, I forgot to tell you that he was a postman. Oh, um, anyway, 
Yeah, due, due to the lack of mobility, you know, later on, the patient couldn't go back to his duties. Um, so, you know, the ER uh, PA and the, the doc were sued for malpractice for missing the diagnosis of tendon lacerations. And uh, the, the plaintiff's experts opined that the tendons were not adequately visualized and the PA should have referred that urgently either to the ER doc or the orthopedic surgeon. Well, we've all uh, had challenges where we are trying to identify tendons intact or not intact, and doctors have been been called in on the same identical charges. So I don't think it's uh, you know unique to any kind of clinician, particularly. Uh, I think that this my experience has been you know you really have to have good visualization, and we know that depending on how you do these things, sometimes uh, whether you uh, you know, flex or extend the, you'll see the tendons come right through the area of the laceration. And then you see the laceration is down further. It's not right underneath where the wound is. It's actually an inch down further. And if you uh, get those tendons with the range of motion, you may find where those lacerations were, which you were, which are not immediately at the base of the wound. So that's kind of, you know, been my experience my experience, but we all get a little little nervous about that. The tendons are so close to the skin on the dorsum of the hand and the dorsum of the foot. Yeah, one of the things that, that really sticks out here is you drop this big piece of glass on a foot. If you clean it up, debride it carefully, and let somebody else close it or re-examine it in two days, you haven't done anybody any harm. And I think that sometimes we feel we have to complete all of this in one visit at that time. And you know what? There are wounds that don't lend themselves to one visit. And and uh, a time interval there is not a bad thing. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Um, you know, as you said, Rick, this is a, a high-risk wound. It's a large laceration over an area with a bunch of superficial tendons. And, you know, it sounds like in this case, the PA saw the patient, the physician did not see the patient. I think this is one of those where, you know, both providers have to recognize a high-risk situation and staff that accordingly. And I think that's in the best interest of the PA, the physician, and the patient. And so um, I I don't want to kind of go through these and and you know, with the assumption that the PA or NP is equally capable in all cases of managing that patient. I think that there are some that, you know, they would like supervision on and we owe them that supervision. And this is probably one of those. I, I think your, your point's well taken. And, and, and that is, if you know it's a high risk injury, um, that ought to send, you know, some flare up in your head. It says, let me just get a couple more eyes looking at it. You know, there's there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, you know, it's not like you know, uh, you know, uh, putting two stitches in the in the small toe. Not, right. I did. I didn't and, mean to minimize it, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, and I think most people, most you know, PAs and NPs, even physicians in that situation, would appreciate another set of eyes. You know, I don't. Um, I, it's it's not to discredit any provider here, but it's a high risk thing. This is one where there should be a little more supervision than just you know they were, it happened down the hallway. And there are some tricks to be able to maybe visualize better that some people bring bring to the table that others don't, and and they might say, oh, that's cool. And so you you know in the process you, you learn uh, you learn about it, but right, a lot of uh, it's on the job training, and it comes from cases like this. Yes, yeah, because if you think if you look at your own hand, I mean, what's right underneath the skin is all of these all of these tendons, and it's honestly it's much easier to examine the range of motion of your fingers than it is to the toes. My toes barely move in any direction, whether my tendons are intact or not. I wouldn't know how to, you know, ask these toes to go up or down. I, I would, you know, I, I wouldn't notice any change kind of thing. So, but, so I, it's always a high risk case. This is, this is a case where there's not talking about a piece of glass there, but, um, but, but in fact, and I wonder, you know, I, I wonder, <clears throat> I've been an advocate of some of this before and everybody kind of shuts me down on it, whether it would have been appropriate for the, for the MRI to be done at that visit. You know, I mean, there's the machine right down there, you know, you can just make a space in the line. 
if everybody's going in there for it, they see why they're demented. And um, maybe that could have been determined that day by a, a, a this this modality, which is there, but which we, I think, underuse. And, and in, this, in this particular case, um, the, the um, they actually before trial settled, they settled for about fifty thousand. Oh, that's not that doesn't seem like very much. It doesn't, does it? Yeah. No. Are you going to do the next one? Sure. Um, so this is a, a fifty-six-year-old female who uh, uh, was referred to the ER by her primary care clinician um, after calling in with complaints of two days of lower back pain um, and pain and difficulty with urination. I probably should stop there. Should yeah, stop, stop, stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, in the ER, this is kind of interesting. In the ER, she was examined by the PA on duty. Uh, patient complained of lower back pain with numbness into the buttocks and the perineal area. I probably should stop there, too. Um, anyway, uh, the patient was able to ambulate uh, PA ordered an LS spine, which revealed only degenerative changes. And then the PA notified the ER doc and the neurosurgeon on call, neither of which elected to see or examine the patient. Uh, uh, the neurosurgeon's advice was to have the patient follow up with him the next day following a scheduled MRI. Um, an indwelling catheter was placed and a liter of urine was received. The patient was given those instructions and sent home. Um, unfortunately, the next day the MRI was postponed until that evening, uh, waiting insurance coverage approval. Um, the MRI subsequently showed intervertebral disc herniation, uh, spondylysis, and stenosis of the spinal uh, canal. Uh, the neurologist saw the patient the following morning, and after removal of the catheter, uh, the patient was un unable to void. Anyway, uh, she was admitted, um, had spinal decompression surgery, um, it did not do well and had bladder and bowel deficits uh, persisted for a long time. And obviously, the diagnosis was made of, of Kaida-Quine syndrome. Um, nonetheless, uh, uh, you know, suit was brought against the hospital, the PA, the ER, the neurologist, and anybody that was walking down the hallway. Um, and uh, because of the failure uh, to make the diagnosis in, in the right amount of time to do something about it. Yeah. You know, uh, I don't want to sound like I'm getting soft in this in my old age here, but this is one you probably should pick up. And the and and the reason is you described it anatomically perfectly. What else could it be at that moment in time? That sounds like the cardiacquinas syndromes that I've been associated with and it's the kind of thing you should have probably sought some consultation on the phone with with uh, neurosurgery to see what they wanted to do and the timing yeah yeah it's the timing here that this that that looks bad i mean she they may have had the exact same outcome if the neurosurgeon had come in and seen them you know in an hour and taken to the operating room but uh, it looks bad to the general public. Well, I, I think it looks bad because it was bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it really is. I, if it was a member of my family, I would be really pissed. I hope some substantial dollars change hands here. I mean, the neurosurgeon says uh, uh, this is elective MRI, you know, kind of thing. Then the next day, uh, the, it doesn't come in to see him. Um, it was like that. That's and the doctor did call the neurosurgeon and got this and got bad advice. Yeah, bad advice. And, exactly. And, and frankly, you know, in these cases, the doctor is supposed to have some balls and say, "No, I really think you need to come in." Um, <laughs> well, I uh, think the you know the doctor didn't call the neurosurgeon. The doctor stayed hands off. The PA is the only one advocating for the patient here and just hit a bunch of closed doors, which I think is you know, the most frustrating part of this is they were really left, you know, out to dry and were still named in the suit. I don't know that the the ER doc or the neurosurgeon really have much much of an excuse here. By the way, when I when I was last doing this with a PA in the department, I knew there were certain attending physicians that I would prefer to talk to than have the PA talk to. Uh, first of all, the, the, those attending physicians wanted another physician 
to be involved in this thing, having looked at the case. And uh, sometimes I think the there there are certain specialties, particularly that can be a little intimidating. Uh, and putting forward, it's like having the medical, the second year medical student uh, talk to one of these guys. Uh, sometimes the attending, the the emergency doc in charge, has to see it and and do the con the conversation, just so that there's um, heavyweight credibility on both sides of the ball. Well, and in order to have that conversation, they have to see the patient themselves, which yes. is really where this this one fell off the rails, it seems. And I think this, um, you know, Randy, you could probably weigh in on this more, but I think this is probably a common thread among PAs and NPs is that sometimes, you know, there's so much variation in how comfortable those conversations are with different physicians, um, you know, being open to asking for help. You know, some people are really open to that, happy to go see the patient. Other people are jerks about it. And I think, you know, this patient, this doctor, just from what we know is probably a jerk about it, didn't see the patient. Um, and I think got what was coming to him, which is full responsibility for what then happened to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're right. Entirely. Uh, and I mean, I worked at a large ER a number of years ago. We had a large number of physicians and there were a number of those physicians who said blatantly, I don't want to talk to the PA, you know, and so you don't come to me. And so that limits then what the PA can do. So you have to, you have to manage the physicians that you work with, unfortunately. And, and, uh, and sometimes things like this happen. And I, I, I would like to think that doesn't happen that often, um, you know, but the importance of that collaboration, not only with PAs and NPs and docs, but every provider out there ought to have some sort of the ability to collaborate because of their level of knowledge. So anyway, this case, interestingly, um, somewhere down the road, the plaintiffs offered to settle, but the, the PA exercised his right under his policy to reject the offer. So they went back to discovery and stuff. Anyway, somewhere down the road, um, they, they, did have, they did end up settling. And, uh, um, and, and I have written down here 50,000, but I'm surprised at that as well. Uh, that's hard to conceive of. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I think this case highlights is the danger in putting things off on a scheduled basis, on an outpatient basis. This one was an insurance denial, but, you know, the mechanism that interferes with scheduled follow-up, they're, they're infinite, right? It could be the kid got sick, there was a car accident, whatever it is, there's some inherent risk in booting that patient to the outpatient setting. And I think this highlights that, but, but those risks are rampant. And that MRI machine's right down the hall there, you know, just... There's a yep. make a space and they, they they can do it right now now. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yep. Rick, have you recently acquired stock in yes, Siemens? You sound very pro study. Oh, I I, th I think that there's this view that that's an off limit test. Um, and I think that that's kind of not the case at all. And I think that had that been done that right then and there. Why not? Why not? Right. You tell me why not. And I thought that this case would go for much more than fifty thousand dollars. But, but and in any case, uh, this is another one where you know I think that it's a shame that the PA really. I could see the why the PA was annoyed here because the PA didn't think he did anything or she did anything wrong, and they didn't. So they want to defend their their honor by uh, you know, but it's but it's also. Isn't it, isn't it, you guys, the, the, um, isn't it true that if the case goes over the limits that uh, you're responsible? Well, how, how's a PA going to, you know, th th when, oh, it's a million dollars. The PA, I don't yeah. even think the insurance company would say, would, would allow, you don't have the resources to pay this if it goes right. over there. How, do, right. how does that right. work? Well, I mean, I've certainly seen those cases where they went over, and it's rare that the plaintiff – he goes wherever he can go, he or she goes, to wherever they can get some money. And so they'll put it together with the hospital, with this or that, because the hospital doesn't like to have that kind of publicity out there as well. If it takes another $50,000 to settle it, that's often where it comes from. Yeah. Ready to move on? Yes. All right. 
Okay, this next one, is the, the, uh, the PSI, a uh, 48-year-old male who came into the ER with a skin laceration across the anterior portion of his left, left wrist. Um, he also uh, noted symptoms of agitation and anxiety. The patient stated he had injured himself while using a carpentry chisel. Um, he had had one prior admission to the hospital for anxiety. Um, vital signs in the exam were all relatively normal. Uh, the wound was appropriately assessed and sutured and dressed, and the patient was discharged with follow-up instructions. Uh, patient the next day was found dead in his apartment after an overdose of barbiturates. Mm -hmm. um, the, pa the patient's estate sued the PA for malpractice. Testimony from a friend who had accompanied the patient there said that the patient had stated that he had was afraid that he had AIDS and needed to speak with a psychiatrist. Uh, this was not noted in the ER medical record. However, the ER nurse testified and also documented in the chart that the patient had told her that he had cut his wrist while working on the carpentry chisel. So, you know, the, obviously the allegation was failing to recognize the warning sign of suicide. Strange, strange wound. I mean, I've woodworked for 40 years and, uh, I've never seen anybody actually cut their wrist with the chisel. I mean, that's that's an odd kind of wound to get. So it, I think it was suspicious off the top. But, uh, you know, I, I, I would hope that there would be some other conversation or something that, that someone else could remember. If this person is asking for help, that's a different situation. It didn't sound uh, like um, it sounded like the patient when he actually got to see the provider wasn't really talking about fear of AIDS or and and was as and was fabricating the cause of this injury and yeah we're, we're I guess we're supposed to be second guessing this just because of where it was if it was on his thigh you wouldn't you wouldn't kind of think of that um, so I guess. I guess there is kind of some obligation to kind of think of, well, the only lacerations we see of the wrist are basically, you know, um, cries for help kind of thing. And right. this was in fact that we just, we just didn't connect the dots very well. Um, so it really depends on the nuances of what re really happened in the department, because even the nurse's note basically didn't help out here at all. Only the friend in the waiting room knew the answer and the, and that that didn't help the you know provider take care of this case. Nope. I think this this speaks in general to the risks associated with supervision and not just, you know, PAs or NPs, but this would if this was a medical student or resident, it'd be super similar where, you know, the the supervisor, say the attending physician has to think about the patient a little differently. So instead of just, you know, wrist laceration, like, you know, that, that maybe should prompt them to think, well, how did that happen? Is that a reasonable mechanism? You know, they're, they're obviously not going to have the time to have a heart to heart with every single patient, you know, that they're providing supervised care for. But I think it's just one of those growing pains of learning how to supervise and kind of, um, ask the question so that you don't miss these high risk patients. And I feel like a laceration to the wrist may, you know, maybe should have prompted the physician to say, you know, how did that happen? Is that reasonable? You know, do you have any other concerns about their mood or something? Yeah, the, the problem here is we, we don't know what we don't know. Right. We, we only have what was, what was documented or, or what, what was said in deposition. Um, right. In, in this case, the, uh, uh, after the depositions, uh, the judge actually dismissed the case with prejudice. And, Interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, because, yeah. you know, we don't obviously when you're you're supervising, you don't want the person who's primarily seeing the patient to give you all the information, but you have to kind of trust them both to provide what's relevant. And then I think you yourself have to think about what else could be relevant. And I think that's super hard to do. And, you know, especially in a case like this. But it, again, it's one of those things that we as attending physicians have to continue to get better at, because I think supervision is going to be more and more in our future going forward. Your point is well. Your point's well taken. That those of us who have been hanging around for more years than I'd like to remember have all heard those a story in the past that 
you're going to ask about that simply because it doesn't make sense to you. You've seen enough people who have been cut with this or that, that that story doesn't make a lot of sense. And and that's the, the function, I think, of attendings, is to remind them of, you know, in my pa- in the past, these are a couple things that I've seen. That's our job. Right. Well, and our job is to, is to continually ask the questions uh, you know, just last week I, I moved to Michigan. Last week I saw my my new imperial medicine doc uh, just uh, for a routine visit. He asked me the, those questions. You know, had considered hurting yourself. I mean, you know, he said I have to ask you. I go, okay. You know, we have to ask those questions, and particularly if the risk is up there. So, um, great. Ready to go on, Rick? Yeah, absolutely. Although it's kind of a shame, you know, the proximity of the death to the visit to the ER is so, you know, they're yeah. just glued right together. It's like, wow, this person was really pretty desperate. This was not, uh, well, I'm, I may kill myself out in the future or something. This is not, this is, um, this is unusual because I think that I, of, of our years seeing patients who have cut the wrist, you know, I, I'm not aware of any of them that, I, that I've seen uh, result in this kind of outcome. Mm-hmm. But maybe yeah. it's because you, you referred them or something like that, and this fellow wasn't referred. But this was a, uh, clearly a, uh, a shame that this occurred, and yeah. I would feel bad if it was a relative of mine who experienced this. And I frankly, I think I probably would have been uh, curious as to how this all went down because... It, they they went to the ER and um, they just didn't get a, enough help, and it wound up in this guy being dead. Um, I, I acknowledge he I, I acknowledge he lied, but I also acknowledge that an experienced doctor would have probably said, you know, I'm, this this just doesn't this this, this is not right. <laughs> yeah, show me uh, how that happened again. <laughs> right? I mean, really, you might. Yeah, have we asked- can't. We can't say like Greg is. Well, I've been chis- chiseling for thirty years. You know, I, I that would never happen. To, you know, that's not a. No, I've never chiseled, Greg, so I don't know. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Um, this next one actually is my favorite one uh, for today. So this is a a sixty one year old very stoic uh, truck driver uh, who this is an urgent care case um, who was seen uh, by the PA in urgent care after a. Uh, fender bender, a motor vehicle accident a few hours earlier. Um, he was out on the freeway and, and uh, bumped into the car ahead of him. Um, and uh, paramedics came and released him. And the safety officer said, well, you're going to go into urgent care anyway. He, his only complaint was some left neck pain. Um, and he was driving, by the way, he's driving an 18 wheeler. And uh, um, anyway, um, he was okay at the scene. Safety officer took him in. PA took a, a good history, documented the examination well. Um, the, as I said, the only complaint was some a little bit of left-sided neck pain um, where the seatbelt was. Uh, physical exam showed no bruising, full range of motion, normal neuro exam. The rest of the exam was unremarkable. Um, he was on cimetidine for what he said he had mild ulcers as prescribed by his primary care doc a week earlier. Uh, vital signs were normal. Uh, x-rays were not taken. Um, uh, patient was discharged to home, um, told to take Tylenol, told to return if the pain increased. Um, patient ended up in the ER in the middle of the night with the diagnosis of a severe myocardial infarction with a loss of a significant amount of cardiac tissue. Um, the malpractice uh, later on was, was filed, and the expert witnesses testified that the PA should have done an EKG during the urgent care visit. And if he had done so, he may have picked up the DMI. <laughs> Interesting. I, you know what? Some of this is just crap. I, I mean, you gotta have something that that takes you along the path here to him having a myocardial infarct. Uh, and I, I, I didn't hear any of that in the initial presentation of the case. See, on that basis, we ought to do an EKG on everybody who comes into the department just prophylactically. And I, I, I think you've got to be careful getting in that kind of thinking. 
without knowing a lot of the a lot more of the details, this uh, person was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. You know, there. But for the grace of God, we, we would have been there and said, "Oh, it's just a seatbelt kind of thing here." You know, it happens all the time. Or I was thinking, you know, if you're going down that path, well, maybe there was some carotid kind of dissection or something like that as a result of this this uh, injury or the like. Um, but I think maybe maybe uh, in terms of physical exam, if it's tender to touch uh, in certain areas, that would be helpful to, uh, in fact, help localize that. Yes, there is something uh, going on here that is uh, I can elicit. Uh, but there had been more to this case than just this, this, I think. But that's why we have malpractice insurance. Yeah. Well, the, alle the allegation later on uh, made by expert experts was that perhaps um, the the MI had started earlier, um, and maybe even might have been missed by the primary care physician a week earlier. And, 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 and we won't know because you know we didn't do any enzymes uh, to determine in the time frame. But you know, in this case, the the uh, the case settled for a uh, hundred thousand for the primary care physician and 20,000 for the urgent care PA. Um, and uh, which is interesting because you know, because it all gets uh, reported to the national practitioner database. So um, even even the amount of 20,000 for the PA, but, but you know. I have a hard time faulting the PA much here, but you know, it's interesting that the, the settlement was five times higher against the primary care physician. And that I could probably get behind because, you know, here's this truck driver who showed up with new, what, heartburn and didn't have any cardiac workup, was just started on an, an antacid. You know, that's risky business there. And presumably his documentation didn't really support that, which is why he ended up with that larger settlement. But the, you know, the PA and the urgent care, I, that would happen to me most days, too. Yeah. Bad luck. Bad luck. Great. You know, and look how many people take that tagamid, saga, you know, all this, you know, all of these anti-acid drugs. I mean, everybody's on seems to be on uh, cimetidine or uh, ranitidine or some dean. Uh, and I think I think that's fine as long as you know you've been thoughtful about why it's not cardiac, and presumably the primary care doctor's documentation wasn't all that thoughtful. You know, I think if he said it's you know, it's not exertional. It's only after spicy meals. He, you know, has this exercise tolerance, whatever. He could potentially get away with just starting him on an antacid. But otherwise, the, like, you know, obese truck driver with new epigastric pain, again, I think that's risky. Yes, it, we agree. Okay. <laughs> uh, any more? I got one more if we have time. Okie doke. Yes, we do. Okay. We do. All right. Uh, and so th this is another urgent care case. Uh, this is a 71-year-old male who comes into urgent care uh, complaining of intermittent dull pain radiating from the chest to the abdomen and the back and the arms for the past week with exertion. Um, the discomfort was accompanied by sweating and relieved with rest. Um, yeah, I could probably stop there. The, yeah. the <laughs> urgent care PA saw the patient. The only thing the patient's taking is baby aspirin, multivitamins, and, and uh, tamsulosin for BPH. Um, but the blood pressure, the vital signs were fine. The patient had a history of a cabbage three years earlier um, and uh, most recently been really anxious about his, uh, his health. No diabetes. Physical exam just showed a very anxious male. Um, the exam was fairly unremarkable. Um, the EKG was performed and was within normal limits except for some LVH, which was consistent with a prior ECG. Um, the PA made the diagnosis of stable angina pectoris, placed on nitrostat uh, with the directions, uh, the appropriate directions. Uh, patient was told to use it before physical activity to prevent chest pain and uh, to, to go call or go to the ER if it got worse. Um, and a uh, patient was scheduled to return in another week. Um, five days later, and after lots of nitrostats later, the patient ended up in the ER. Um, 
the, the, the wife had said he's been taking nitrostat every hour, you know, for the last six hours uh, without results. And, uh, and of course, uh, uh, the MI diagnosis was made. The patient was moved to the cardiac unit, went into cardiac arrest and died. And, uh, and you know, the, the PA, the collaborating physician, all sued for malpractice for missing the diagnosis of an impending MI. Mm. Rachel? <laughs> um, yikes. So, yeah. yeah, I think that the PA shouldn't have missed this. Um, I think that there should have been a supervising physician more closely involved. And I think it potentially highlights some of the dangers of diagnosis being kind of part of the scope of practice in an unlimited way. Um, you know, as scope of practice laws have been expanding state by state by state, diagnosis has, you know, historically was one of the things that was off that list. Um, it was, you know, follow up on established diagnoses, treatment, and then only more recently diagnosis kind of getting pushed into that because of the recognition that that's kind of inherently a riskier business. And I think, you know, this highlights why. Um, and so I think, you know, not to say that it shouldn't be part of the scope of practice, but uh, if it if it is, it needs to be an area that's better supervised. Um, I think the difference between stable angina, unstable angina, and STEMI, kind of that spectrum, is not even poorly understood by necessarily students or residents that that I work with. And so it seems like it wasn't well understood by this PA either. And again, just kind of highlights the need for recognition of high risk cases and supervision when that's when when that occurs. Yep. I would just <clears throat> in defense of uh, residents and the other people you work with, I have a big problem with this myself. It's not like I have the instant correct answer on all these people. But I think what we do is we kind of look at what the workup has been to that point and then decide if you're giving people nitro tablets and they're working uh, and you, you haven't worked them up for the rest of the disease complex, you got a problem. Uh, you know, because a nitro works, I mean, kind of think about this for a second. That's just told me that that's where my problem is or maybe, and they need bigger workup than that. So uh, I, I was never a big guy on handing out nitro tablets as a sort of a first treatment out the door of the emergency department. I think that that's, uh, I think what you've done there is planted a flag that I've, I've made a mistake. I probably should have brought them in and worked them up correctly. Well, yeah, and I, I, and I, th I, I think also, thanks. I think also, um, you know, if you're in the urgent care um, and, you've, and you've got a cardiac patient there and you've done an EKG, uh, it, it, as a PA, I'd like to get another set of eyes looking at that EKG as well. Um, you know, and the material said that it, it was similar to the previous one. Um, I don't, I'm not sure how they got the previous one, but let's assume that they, that they had it. You know, that's important information to share, you know, with your collaborating physician as well as the case. So um, that, I think that, that, I think I, this case, I think whoever the, the clinician is, it sort of jumped to the diagnosis early. And, yep. and once you jump to the diagnosis, then you know what the treatment is and you're ending up treating the wrong thing. You know, I didn't, I don't know that I thought that was a kind of treatment for um, chest pain back in maybe the sixties or seventies <laughs> where you would give out a bottle of nitro kind of thing that yeah. that's, that's certainly not the way you do it now. So it's like, I'm wondering um, about the, uh, Initial treatment that, that that's just kind of like two standard deviations off the bell, I think, honestly. Yeah, I, I also think this is an area or it's kind of a problem we're creating for ourselves in that urgent cares have limited testing capabilities. So it's kind of pushing people into this false assumption or false idea that you can screen somebody with chest pain with an EKG and if that looks OK, they're good. 
um, you know, one of my friends who's an emergency physician just took a job in urgent care and she was telling me I can do EKGs, but not troponins. And that's probably exactly what the situation was here. You know, all they have is an EKG and it looked okay. So then they have to make the decision, are they going to refer them on or not? And obviously this patient should have been referred, but I think just showing up at sites with limited testing capabilities pushes you into this type of decision-making more often than a standard emergency department does. Well, I guess well, the urgent care docs uh, people need to know that a normal uh, doesn't change your idea of referral. An abnormal will clearly change your idea of a referral in terms of its urgency. So um, a normal shouldn't shouldn't make you feel particularly great. Yeah. No, I, I, even two normals in a row shouldn't make you feel great. Sorry. <laughs> Right. But, you know, all these urgent cares, they track, you know, what proportion of patients are you referring on? Like, that's kind of a ding against you. And so there are lots of incentives to just manage that patient there. And if you're told, you do your best to manage the patient there and you have an EKG and nothing else, this is going to happen more and more often. Yeah. And kind of speaks to the importance of, of being able to differentiate those patients who need more and, and, you know, a process that lets you do that without getting a slap on the wrist. Yeah. And I think that <clears throat> most of us who've around medicine for ancient numbers of years, understand that one EKG was never the standard in ruling out myocardial disease. It just means they weren't actually infarcting in front of you perhaps at that moment. Oh. But uh, I, I was ne I've never seen a paper that says that one EKG on one visit says you don't have heart disease. But what you said just now, those of us who have been hanging around medicine for years, that does not describe the majority of people working in an urgent care. Well, and I that's think that's probably true. part of the issue. Yeah, that could be. Any other you know, thoughts the, about these cases? Um, I, I guess another issue that sort of came to mind, and it, and it was uh, based on an, an article that I just read the other day about uh, PAs and NPs and physicians and malpractice. And I was surprised to see that there continues to be more malpractice cases where PAs are sued independently of the physician. I think in, in, in there were six cases where the PA was the only defendant in the case. Um, and uh, I mean, the majority, majority of the cases were physicians without PAs and NPs, and there were smaller amounts with both. But I thought that was interesting and, and worrisome. Well, and I think part of the reason you're seeing that is because there's more independent practice. So they don't have a supervising physician to name. You know, most lawyers, if they can name somebody, they're going to because the physician has a higher malpractice cap. You know, there's more money there. But if the PRNP is totally working independently, that's all they got. So, Well, well, except in every state. Uh, uh, nope, I take it back. You're, there is a couple of states now where they don't have to list the a supervising physician. So you're right on, right. you're right on point there. Yep. And, and yeah, it might take, it'll probably take a few more years for those cases to really start coming out, but I suspect that trend will continue. Although comparing, uh, proportionally PA and NP cases to, uh, physician cases, we are winning by far the, the physicians are way ahead of the PAs and MPs. Yeah. Uh, and we're, do, and we're the, doing just fine as we, but for the reasons we're discussing, A, we have deeper pockets, and B, we're listed as supervising or collaborating, whatever word you want to use, for, in, in almost all states for almost all patient encounters. And especially given that it takes a couple of years for these to come out of the courts, you know, what we're seeing now is a couple of years ago where that was even more true. And five, 10 years from now, it's going to look a lot different. Right. But even independently of where physicians are working uh, alone, they, they wind up uh, in <laughs> substantially more suits. Percentage-wise, so um, we we still are the ones that are causing the, the the biggest losses. I'm surprised at the the magnitude of the losses here that we were uh, made known of, because I thought that they were all so, so quite quite low. Um, we have an article that uh, uh, two things I want to do. One is I saw it recently in one of the emergency department newspapers. We reported on this about maybe four or five months ago, so we were uh, ahead of that. But um, I just want to remind listeners about this case of wrongful termination of Dr. Uh, Rovant by, um, who was it? i got to get this right, uh, a division of MCARE, 
where the, the total settlement after uh, applications of, uh, uh, of um, going back and forth and, uh, and applying for the punitive damages caps and appeals and all of that other stuff, after it's all said and done, this doctor basically has $23 million, which is the send the message kind of uh, award to MCARE about um, firing doctors who basically complain about staffing. Uh, I think this physician complained about the fact that um, they were the only doctor in the department and the hospital wanted them to take care of the uh, um, codes on the floor. Greg, you and I have been there many times. Many times. I, I worked at a single covered, single physician covered hospital for my entire career. And there was this issue about emergencies on the floor and who's going to cover those kinds of things. And why can't the anesthesiologist help out? And what about the uh, OB anesthesiologist who's just hanging around waiting for a lady to come in? And these things were really never uh, ironed out satisfactorily because it required ultimately some other clinician to cover these ca uh, cardiac arrests. And so here, the apparently the Dr. Brofont felt that the uh, staffing was not safe. He um, said that and um, he, he lost his job. I don't know that a $23 million settlement seems to be, uh, or, or, or award seems to be a, a little high to me, but th that's out there. And if you want to read about that case, uh, it's, it's frankly, it's all over the place. Uh, there was all, an article, any, any comments? I don't think Dr. Brofine has to worry about finding a job anymore <laughs> and, and being fired or anything so, like that. He's free of that. I, I remember reading about that case and apparently there was some um, correspondence between whatever that subsidiary of MCARE was and uh, the physician's group saying basically, you know, it's a money thing. Like, we're not going to hire more people because it's a money thing. And I think that's probably where this very large award stemmed from. But but that's always the answer. It's a money thing. Yeah, but it's not usually in writing. <laughs> oh, okay. Right. Details, well, details. He, 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 the other thing is... Go ahead. Oh, he was he was not just fired, but they prevented him from working with any of their groups within like a tri-state area, which I think is probably also where some of that $20 million in punitive damages came from. Like that was just kind of a jerk move. Yeah, that no was reason. kind of a blackballing kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Okay. So I feel better about him getting the $23 million. <laughs> um, I want to talk about an article that talks about uh, state boards. We've talked about state boards in the past. This article actually is out of MD rheumatology, but it, it, all the things that it are applicable to those of us who work in the emergency department, it's called dangers of a medical board investigation, how to protect yourself. And um, there's a bunch of bullets here and I just jump in whenever you think that uh, you, you want to. But one of the things that we often think of is the medical state boards are there, there, there are people that renew our license. It's $800 in California every two or three years to get your license renewed here. Uh, which is kind of ridiculous because my wife's legal legal uh, um, license is a fraction of that. I thought she should be at eight hundred dollars too, but she wasn't. In any case, they basically say no, 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 no. They have a a a ability uh, ability to investigate claims of malfeasance or whatever by the uh, lay, lay public, and I think pretty much every if you write a letter to the board about some kind of medical misadventure, uh, they they almost are required to respond. And one of the reasons for that is because um, it, there was a belief that the medical boards really were letting the doctors off. And there were doctors on the boards who were kind of like, um, you know, looking the other way. And uh, there was a, uh, one of these, uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna find it here, um, one of these, kind of um, Ralph Nadery kind of organizations who started going after medical boards and basically looking at uh, how many uh, reviews of doctors were there, how many doctors were sanctioned. And they started rating medical boards in terms of what they viewed their efficacy was, you know, in the, in the 50 states. And that resulted in everybody kind of paying more attention. And then there were a lot more cases, but 
in 2017, there were 8,813 8, actions, about 800 suspensions, about 800 probations, about 600 su surrenders of license, and about 300 revoked licenses. Now, you put that in perspective, there are 775,000 doctors in the country. And of those, about 700 licenses were either given up or taken away. Um, it doesn't sound like a very large percentage at, at all out of 750,000. I think it's probably less than 1%. They also point out that state board disciplinary actions are four times more, more frequent than medical malpractice lawsuits yep. against physicians. You know, I, I didn't even think of that in terms of the magnitude. You're much more likely to get into trouble with your state board than they are to get sued, apparently, four to one. By the way, Rick, there's a lot of things that people don't realize. It isn't the lawsuits against docs. It's the actions taken, for example, for writing of narcotics prescriptions and things like that. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that go on at the state level which aren't malpractice. Uh, and we have we had a much bigger problem with the uh, with the opioid uh, situation than we did malpractice with regard to how you're going to control this, how you're going to follow up on this. Uh, it's it, it's not just malpractice cases that they're looking at. Yeah, they're not necessarily malpractice at all. They're looking at uh, the in terms of the frequency of complaints. There, it's about impaired physicians, substance abuse, as you mentioned, improper prescribing, faulty medical records, met mental and, and physical health problems, uh, and standards of care issues. All of those are what they're really uh, looking at. And uh, every, go ahead. I was gonna say every state board is different, but most of them you know, are in the business of trying to keep physicians and PAs, whom they mostly oversee in most states, you know, practicing. And so, um, while they have disciplinary actions, they also will support rehab and kind of, um, you know, rehab processes. So if there's a patient, a, a physician who, you know, acknowledges they're an alcoholic, it's not that they just get their license pulled. Like that board in many states will work with them to overcome that and, and be able to continue practicing. So, you know, they, they aren't, while they maybe um, kind of overlap a little bit with malpractice cases, they're also quite different in how they interact with physicians. Exactly. So I guess the one of the issues is how punitive are, uh, are these medical boards? And, you know, some are clearly more punitive than others. And I think that, you know, uh, Greg and I have had some experience with the uh, New York State Medical Board as being, you know, they um, they view their, they view all, all of them view their job as to protect the public. I mean, uh, uh, that's their fundamental job. You know, one of the things that they pointed out was this, if the medical board starts inv investigating a claim about the, some patient says you were mean to them or something like that, and they go in, they can look at everything in your practice. It is not limited to the complaint that was that was uh, filed against you. It's just like Medicare when they come in to do a, an EMTALA investigation. Your books are open and the entire hospital is, is, at, is at risk once once they do that. Uh, they point out that all punitive actions of the board are, are, are go to the medical database. Um, uh, the, the boards are kind of behind some of the kind of national angst about mental health for healthcare providers, because some boards view that more negatively than others and, you know, will restrict practice for mental health reasons. So that's, yeah, I'm not, I don't have enough of the background information to kind of go into numbers or specific states, but that's, you know, one of the reasons that healthcare providers nationwide are reticent to go get mental health care is because they've heard about boards taking, you know, steps against your license in response to that. Or, su or levels of supervision uh, that um, basically, um, or, you know, it becomes known to everybody at the hospital kind of thing because uh, your practice is in some way being affected. Uh, right. The organization that was rating the medical boards in terms of what they thought to be their effectiveness was called Public Citizen. And they stopped doing that in two thir 2013. However, the 
aura of being looked at by outsiders uh, basically still uh, permeates uh, how the boards feel that they need to respond uh, to the public. Uh, as it's been noted, every time we've talked about this thing in the past, uh, you need to hire an attorney uh, from when, it, when they, they contact you, that uh, this is not something that you should go about by yourself, even though you, you, it may appear relatively benign, the pa patient has made some complaint against you. It's really best to do that. Um, they do talk about physicians who are kind of beaten up by the boards, and they think that boards basically, uh, in many cases, um, the me board members are really not the ones who are taking the action, but it's staff, and staff are the ones who are doing the investigations, and staff are the ones who are making the recommendations to the board, and the boards are not taking their, um, the, the actual members are not taking their uh, responsibilities as they should. And so there's a coalition of physicians' rights who basically are uh, involved with physicians who have been involved, have had a rough time with boards. And the idea is that these boards, the perception is that they have gone outside the, their prerogatives and um, they have unfairly uh, beaten up on doctors. Uh, I don't think there was anything else in that paper uh, that uh, we haven't known before. Um, there's only a couple minutes left. Uh, Greg, you, drink, you still Excuse drinking me. wine? I, I'm still drinking wine, but um, I, I do not have a wine of the month this month only because we are moving again part of the wine cellar. Uh, but, uh, you know, drink, <laughs> drink some of those I've recommended in the last uh, year. You'll be just fine. Okay, so you're going to hold off on get out – Dust off one of those bottles, you know, that were for special <laughs> occasions kind of thing that you never used. Yeah. Well, oh, I will I will add this. Uh, everything that's been written about the deterioration of the white wine in the bottle is exactly right. Uh, red wines are for storage. White wines are for drinking. And if you've got a white wine there that you've been saving for 12 years, uh, think about it again. Um, I proved that this month, uh, pulling a few more off the shelf and, and opening some off, which were great wines at the time. Whites don't keep, reds keep. <laughs> and so think about it. Okay, Randy, thanks so much for joining us uh, in Michigan. Greg in Michigan, thank you. And Rachel in Arizona, I'll be I'll be coming down to your neck of the woods in about uh, 10 days. Uh, awesome. I hear you're becoming a nice hotspot for uh, the uh, the virus now. Aren't we all? Yeah, yes, and all <laughs> those little kitties are back in school now. There's little fomites bringing this stuff back and forth to us now. So, grandparents, be careful. Don't let those little <laughs> kitties contaminate you. All right, bye for now. Talk to you next month. Risk Management Monthly signing off. <laughs>